A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and this week we are revisiting one of my favorite conversations I've ever had on this show with one of my favorite comedians, Nick Kroll. Nick and I spoke in the studio back in the fall of 2019 when season three of his Netflix animated series Big Mouth was just about to drop. This past weekend, that show's sixth season premiered, and since I already binged it as fast as I could, I can confirm that it remains one of the funniest shows on TV. Since we talked, Nick has only become a bigger comedy star. And in just the past month or so, he co-starred in the most talked-about movie of the fall, Don't Worry Darling, and put out his first real hour of stand-up called Little Big Boy, also on Netflix. Here's a clip from the special in which he explains how he became a comedian. Uh, I was in seventh grade, and uh, it was our first, like, boy-girl party. Uh, And that was always very exciting. This was back in the day when everyone was still straight. I was very excited particularly about this party because there was this girl there, Lizzie, who I had had a crush on my entire childhood. And she's sitting alone watching TV, and I walk in, and I already have my opening line ready to go. I go, so did you hear Mrs. Goldman's daughter might have cancer? (laughs) Just spitting hot game. (laughs) And just as she looks over at me, Jenny, the girl whose house it is, comes up behind me and she pantses me. Lizzie looks over at me and she is horrified. Jenny, the girl who pantsed me, is mortified. And I am now a comedian. So now felt like the right time to listen back to this conversation in which he goes deep on the origins of Big Mouth teases the spin-off series Human Resources that finally premiered this past spring and shares so many other great stories from his career about working with John Mulaney, Dave Chappelle, Seth Rogen, and more. Let's get to it. Here's me with Nick Kroll. Just take your time. Not catching up, just trying not to fall behind. Does that make sense? Exactly. All right. I understand. How's this? Is this okay? Do I need headphones? If you would like them, they're right there for I you. I don't really, I don't really need them. Do you like hearing your own voice? I, I, I hear my voice more plenty. Than, more than you need to. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just before we even start. I'm just looking where my my next thing is and what my timing. Oh yeah, is. let me know. How long do you normally go? We for? usually go an hour. Okay. Yeah, that's great. I don't think I can go much past that because I have to be in in Hollywood at, All right. for a I'll pitch. Be, I'd like to be walk. mindful of the time. Thanks. But an hour, I think, is fine. Yeah. So what what's your next thing? You have a you have a pitch. Uh, I have a pitch that I'm a, a part of. Yeah. Just a just a, a small part of. <laughs> cool. Um, well, thanks for coming in and doing this. Yeah, man. Um, it's an exciting uh, Monday morning after Big Mouth dropped on Netflix. <clears throat> yes. Uh, so, yeah, do you uh, do you get a lot of feedback? Do you pay attention to it? Uh, do you do you take it all in? I do. <laughs> I mean, it's such a it's such a weird thing because it in, it's so different than when I started all of this. Like, if someone said like even five years ago, or let's say ten years ago, mm-hmm. that I would work on a show for over a year. It would come out over one weekend. The entire show would come out. And then anyone who wanted to be in touch with you about the show positively and negatively could contact you in any number of platforms. Uh, It's a pretty surreal thing. So I uh, I both engage it and try to keep some distance from it because Mm -hmm. it's just... No matter how positively everything comes in, it's just it's just it's just it's weird and it's I think it's hard for the brain to kind of absorb, you know, because you've sat with this thing, this show that like, you know, basically me and my my 
creative partners and writers and cast have been working on in different stages and forms for well, like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just gets put out into the world for you know, hopefully millions of people to, to view. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah. I think people are, are really excited about the show, the season three coming out. And then most people probably do finish it in the, in the one weekend or a lot of people do, I think. Yeah. Do you ever wish that it came out week to week and that you could kind of like put some space and people could have a conversation about each episode more? Or I mean, if I had my druthers, what I would tell people and I, people have asked me and I'm like, I, I mean, there's something there is something deeply gratifying about watching more than one episode at a time. Mm-hmm. Um but I kind of wish people watched it like there's 10 episodes in a season, like three sittings over a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. I think would be nice, you yeah. know. One episode here, two episodes there, three ep- – you know, I just think that like – I think when you binge all of it in a – and I'll take it however – you know, it's yeah. like it, however people want to watch it, I'm mm-hmm. grateful for. People decide they want to watch the entire season. Um, but I think that like stuff sticks with you a little more when you absorb it over a period of time versus like one, you know, bingey kind of uh, experience. Um, at least that's how I've – Mm-hmm. That's how I seem to intake media and have it really resonate and sit with me. Sometimes, I mean, we had people this, I had a bunch of people this weekend being like, I binged it and then I re binged it again. And I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's a lot. It's a lot. But it is so dense with jokes that you can, I think it does, it rewards repeat viewing too. I think so. Animation really lends itself to rewatching because there are so many different jokes happening on so many different layers, both visually and, and joke wise and storytelling. And that, uh, that I do think you can rewatch it and find new stuff every time. Yeah. Well, um, I love the new season so much. I love the show. Um, I got to, I got it a little early, so it did, watch it probably over a couple weeks oh cool um and just and think it's great but i was i was looking back because i interviewed you for the daily beast before the first season came out right and i talked to you a little bit about um the audience for it and whether you thought that the kids the age of the characters would watch it ah uh, what did and, i say and you kind of said like well i'm not gonna tell them to watch it but you kind of hinted like maybe they would enjoy it or yeah. maybe they would get something out of it and there and since then there's been kind of all this at least anecdotal evidence that i've heard from friends and yeah. people that that kids are watching it and these you know this so it's the show's about seventh graders and that's kind of and that's the age group that we're talking about and, yeah. that, they, and that they do let, love it and get a lot out of it and learn from it so i mean what what's your what is your thought on that now i mean do you do you, do you hear that Uh, I do. I hear it a lot. I mean, I have nieces and nephews and I have like some of them are right in that sweet spot of like seventh, eighth, ninth grade and obviously high school. Like I assumed it's so funny that I because I I mean, I'm like, oh, you probably interviewed while I was like pacing around my kitchen. Were yeah. we in the? F- it was, was on the phone. Yeah, yeah, it was on the phone. So my get is I was like walking around my kitchen, like jacked up on iced mm-hmm. coffee, like doing five interviews, being like, I yeah. hope people watch the show. Probably like the week before the first season came out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So and and I we have been more than pleasantly surprised about how how many kids have watched it, and and even more so that parents are okay with it because mm-hmm. it's obviously the show is very dirty but like i think more and more people are realizing that like with the messaging of what we're saying is is i think pretty trying to be pretty responsible where we're you know but again also like we're we are just an entertainment show but um having kids watch the show i've i mean i like nieces and nephews like texting me dming me being like my friends all watch the show we're so excited everyone loves it like and that's awesome because mm-hmm. it is Look, it's a show that we all made, and we're all very much adults, but we made it, uh, and it's about this very lonely time in life and and tricky time, and so the idea that kids would watch it and hopefully feel a little less alone inside of it and, and maybe learn a thing or two and, and just and, and have a laugh at it and be like, oh, I can laugh at this stuff mm-hmm. um, is very gratifying. Yeah, so the, the season three starts in the spring of seventh grade for yeah. these characters, and I know you got... Uh, picked up for uh, six seasons, uh, three more seasons, um, which is great. Congrats on that. Thank you. Um, Do you, have you thought about how these characters will age? Because there's this thing in animation where the Simpsons and, you know, Family Guy, these kids stay the same age, but they, but these kids, the the nature of your show seems like they, they do need to, to grow a little bit. So have you, how have you thought about that? You know, it, it's a show about kids going through puberty and, 
Well, it, so it started being like one of the reasons we wanted to do the show was because most coming of age shows the kids hit puberty and age out mm-hmm. quickly. So like I grew up with the Wonder Years and like Fred Savage hits puberty and mm-hmm. like you're like, well, I can't really tell these like coming of age <laughs> stories anymore because yeah. Fred is now an adult. So we were like, great, we can do animation, we can keep the kids young. Mm-hmm. But then as we're making it, it's the show is about kids changing and to not have them change and evolve uh, and literally grow and emotionally grow uh, would feel like it's a disservice to to the the, the subject matter. So we're we're aging them very slowly, mm-hmm. um, and we're we're pushing them through. Like season three takes place in the spring, you know. Uh, the Valentine's Day special, which is technically the beginning of season three, is in February. And so mm. we're slowly moving them forward. Um, so we have a, you know, a bit of a map um, as to where and how we think the kids grow and to what levels. And But also we have a very clear idea of what we want to do in general, but we also do let the show and the characters and the stories like tell us what what they want to be and and try to listen to that Mm -hmm. yeah well one of the episodes that i really enjoyed in the new season is uh the one where where nick gets addicted to his cell phone Mm. uh celsi which is uh uh, voiced by chelsea peretti yes um so can you talk a little bit about how why you wanted to make that part of it because that is such a big issue now is like cell phone addiction and with adults as well as yeah with kids (laughs) well it was it it started with season three i think for us is is a little more of an examination of what it's like to be a kid today the Mm -hmm. first couple seasons were really more a bit of a nostalgic look back at andrew and me and and all of our friends and with the experiences we had growing up and that stuff is still there but we now i think by season three we're like all right let's start to get into what it's like now for kids um and you know the show is always taking place in the present tense but it was minimal where we saw screens and things like that here and there and the cell phone addiction stuff is obviously such a big deal for kids right now. Every kid I know has a phone. Every parent I know is trying to navigate and figure out how to deal with it because it's like it's a it's a drug that's in your pocket. And I can speak from my experience of feeling very addicted and connected to my phone. I mean, it's like sitting here on the table as yeah. we do this interview, and I'm like, it the <laughs> the energy off of it, and the, like it's. To me, it's like vibrating energy constantly. Yeah. And I find it, I find myself really obsessed and addicted to it. And so it felt like we can talk about this because kids are really going through it. But also it's something that I can really connect with personally of mm-hmm. feeling like I this weird emotional relationship. And then, you know, we were like, who could voice that? And, and, my friend Chelsea Peretti, who's on the show already as as Missy's mother and plays has played a number of other characters on the show, but uh, as someone who I think has such a funny grasp over phones and social media, and you know Chelsea's just got such a clear, distinctive voice, literally and. Uh, metaphorically in mm-hmm. the space that it felt like she would be a great person to to voice the phone. Yeah, she's great in in the role. Um, the other one that I, the other episode that I wanted to talk to you about is the um, disclosure, the musical. It finally happened. We waited so long. They captured the magic and put it to song. Got to land the part. Got to keep my composure to be in the musical of the movie disclosure. All right, people, let's get started. Who's up first, please? I'm Nick Birch, and I'm reading for the Michael Douglas role. I'm a family man, not a sexual harasser. My boss tried to do me, now my life's a disaster. I only let her blow me, I did nothing wrong. Wow, very loud, thank you. Which I actually just listened to you on How Did This Get Made, yeah. talking about the original Disclosure movie with uh, Demi Moore and, and Michael Douglas, mm-hmm. um, which was really funny. Did you was that a movie that you uh, that that you thought about or watched at a, at a young age that you that, that you connected to in some way? I mean, it's part of that. There's a period of movies in the '90s, late '80s and '90s, where Michael Douglas was like what we like to say was too sexy for his own good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, there was Basic Instinct, Fatal Attraction, and then Disclosure was sort of the third in those movies. And to me, more had her run of like. 
uh, that and um, uh, uh, what was the Robert Redford Woody Harrelson movie? Um, mm, I don't know. Uh, where it's like Robert Redford offers a million dollars to Woody Harrelson. Oh, uh, indecent with, proposal. Indecent proposal. Yeah. It was all in these like sexy sexual politics movies in the nineties. And so it came together a few ways. One, we knew we wanted to do a musical episode, like that the kids put on a musical. Mm-hmm. So we we knew we wanted to do that. We knew that all of this season was the first season that we wrote after Me Too had really yeah. taken hold and built momentum. And so we were like, we want to talk about sexual harassment. Um, so we thought maybe, oh, a musical sexual harassment. And then I sort of off handedly said like you know the bad example would be like they do a musical of the movie disclosure (laughs) and then we were like everyone sort of laughed but then we're like well now let's try to figure out what the actual movie is and we sort of we went back to like look at other movies that were sort of are now problematic Mm -hmm. you know it's like oh maybe it's like revenge of the nerds or Mm -hmm. a movie like that that we all loved growing up but then you now go back and watch and you're like 16 candles yeah yeah these movies that you're now like oh these are tricky but they just weren't quite as funny or didn't quite make sense it's It's almost those are like two on the nose yeah this is a little more left field (laughs) yeah and disclosure really speaks to 25 years later a lot of what there is a lot of talk of, which is the paranoia of women using weaponizing sexual harassment. Mm. Um, But within that episode, so there's that play and there's all that stuff. But within that episode, my actual favorite stuff in there is the Lola, Mr. Lizer relationship, which I think really speaks to so much of what really happens that is very gray and weird and gaslighty Mm -hmm. and people using their power to do something that's inappropriate and maybe like just weird gray areas. I mean, not gray, it's black and white. Mm -hmm. Like a teacher should never make a student feel like she has to do anything that she doesn't want to do or, or, and then gaslight her for feeling crazy about it. But but he makes her feel like it's gray maybe, or he, yeah, yeah. it's just, it's just a mess. That's this stuff is a mess. And so we just thought it was funny. And then like you go back and watch disclosure and it's very, it's so 90s. Mm-hmm. Every piece of the clothing is so blousey. <laughs> um, Demi Moore is a great – she's great in the movie, but the character is so flawed and it's so like through the white ma- – it's th- so through the male gaze, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um and anyway, so that was sort of it. Just came together. It's one of my favorite episodes. And then the other side of that episode is Queer Eye. Yeah, it's like the we got the Queer Eye guys to to Queer Eye make over Coach Steve. Yeah, Coach Steve. I think this season really uh, hits a hits a new level. I think he's my he's my new favorite character mm. on the show. Mm. Um, he's in, sorry, I'm drinking yeah, iced coffee yeah. while we do this, but um, yeah, we, he he'd gotten fired in season two, so he now sort of pops up in these weird moments mm-hmm. and clips throughout episodes, and you know he's a very fun kind of garnish to moments. Yeah, I think his his riff on uh, Uber driving uh, made me laugh harder than anything <laughs> oh, <laughs> in a while. Oh, good, good, so that good. Was over the over the credits of one good, episode. Good, good, good. Yeah, that um, was just me in a booth venting a bit <laughs> on my experience with Uber drivers. Um, do you you voice so many characters on this show? Do you is there one that you've kind of gravitated towards, or one that you enjoy doing more than others at, at this point? Or no, I really love. I you know I I always had the same answer for Kroll Show. It's 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 kind of the same. It's really whatever character I'm doing at the time. I mean, the most you know Nick, the character of Nick, which is me, is is slightly the most challenging because he's he's you know he's. You know, like Coach Steve or Lola or the Hormone Monsters that I do, like, they're, you kind of can immediately fall into what their point of view is or mm-hmm. what the jokes are that they do. Um, Nick is trickier because he's me and in some capacity, and so it's a little more nuanced. Um, and I think, you know, we're continuing to find new interesting things to, to deal with with him. But he's, you know, him and Andrew and, and specifically him this season, Nick is sort of a a driving force through the season. And so, so sometimes like being the lead of a thing is not the most fun because you're carrying story. Um, and you're a little more reactive to the funny characters Mm -hmm. like coach Steve. Um, I'm really enjoying more, the further we get into like a character like Lola and the more you, that she becomes less of just like a, the more that I can like get into the like the underlying psychology of her and, mm. and give her more to do, like in that Blizer, uh, the that 
that disclosure episode where you right. really see how a poor girl like Lola, who's just like so happy to get the attention of a of a teacher and then gets caught up in something that she doesn't even quite understand and is quite innocent inside of it, um, I think is really fun colors to play with. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I, I kind of love them. They're all like my – it sounds so cheesy, but they're all my babies. <laughs> yeah. I love them all equally and for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so you tweeted out a, a review of the show and this, and I read it and this quote really caught my eye. This is from the Vogue review mm. by Emma Spector, uh, quote, it's refreshing to see a show made by adults tackle the complex question of sexual fluidity with humor that isn't derived from a hacky cynical angle of aren't these kids, aren't these kids crazy with their non-binary pronouns. Uh-huh. Um, and it reminded me of, and maybe this just cause I just saw Joker last night uh-huh. of this Todd Phillips uh, controversy. Uh-huh. Which I don't know, have you followed that at all? Where he, she, you know, a light, bit, lightly. Yeah. So he basically said he used to make comedies like The Hangover, yeah. and he stopped doing that because he thought it was like impossible to be funny now that in right. this woke culture. Right. And your show, Big Mouth, feels like it's like the perfect example of why that's not true, mm. because you are able to be really funny in this and deal with these issues. And and I think that review speaks to that. Mm-hmm. Um. So I was just curious if you if you think about that or what your kind of reaction is to that that idea you know it's I, I will preface it by saying like you know I mean here we are on a podcast talking about comedy like sh- like so I'm like part of me is just like I don't I'm like so like I don't know about weighing in on any of this mm-hmm. like I just kind of want like what I will say is like I think that you can still talk about anything and be crazy and not feel too censored and like it is a it is a more it's a trickier time but also like um you know it's like we have i don't know we have a show where like a boy sends a dick pic to his cousin that he made out with like mm-hmm. you can still do and say some pretty crazy wild shit yeah you know um but everybody approaches comedy differently and has different objectives and opinions inside of it. And, you know, and we don't always get it exactly right. And like, there are people who are not always thrilled with how we're, uh, 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 speaking about an issue. And, and I'm, I'm of the opinion personally, I can't speak for anyone else, however they want to do comedy or whatever they want to say. I'm like, you know, we have this ability to listen and communicate with the audience and, hear what they have to say and and like and sometimes I'm like I don't agree with you and other times I'm like all right yeah I hear you like Mm -hmm. we didn't get that exactly right like we'll we'll do better I'll try to do Mm -hmm. better and I think like I'm personally interested in like like I went to the Galapagos last year Mm -hmm. and and like the Galapagos is this amazing place where you see all these animals that have evolved separately inside of their own islands, right? That's mm-hmm. the basic idea of it. And it's this incredible uh, um, uh, example, examples of, of how creatures evolved and adapt in their own spaces. And you can watch them because they all have their own islands. And I was struck by just the, the creatures that survive are the ones that adapt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like a iguana that can figure out how to grow a tail back after a bird bites its tail off. Like that's the iguana, their progeny are the ones that live on. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, uh, you know, I'm here to evolve and adapt. Um, and uh, and you know, everybody everybody goes and makes their own art and however they want to do <laughs> yeah. it. God bless them. And if they stop making it because it's not the way they want to do it anymore, you know, go ahead. Mm-hmm. And if they want to change or they want to complain, and that's what their art is, then you know. Go go ahead. Yeah. Uh, is there an example of something from the first uh, couple seasons maybe that you got feedback on in Big Mouth that you said, oh, maybe that was that was the wrong way to approach that? Yeah, like, you know, season one, uh, I think we had a thing, Totally Gay, it's a song, and, and in it we had Freddie Mercury, and we, you know, Freddie Mercury says he was gay, and, and, um, and we got feedback from the audience that a lot of people were like, Freddie Mercury was actually considered himself or was, was really more bisexual, mm-hmm. and like... We then in, I don't know if it was, I think it's season two, we were like, okay, we correct ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're like, Freddie Mercury was considered himself or was considered bisexual. Um, we are currently, there are um, things happening in this season that people are like, you didn't, 
you have not classified this how we want to classify this. And, you know, I'm like, okay, I, I'm listening to what you have to say and, mm. and we will try to do better. And like, and that, and the, you know, to have a show that is talking about so much of this stuff. And I think so much of it is in, super important to people about their sexual identity and, and gender identity and all these things. Like I, I, we're not going to always get it right, you know? And like, and 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 all I can say to the people who feel like like either hurt or not seen that like you know we're we are reading what you're saying and we are aspiring to to get it right and have people feel like they're being represented and and that's like kind of all we can do and and I mean it's this amazing as we started talking about the episode about like the feedback that is now readily available to us as creators um, and the audience can weigh in and say like, we love this. We don't like this. This doesn't feel right. This feels like you, you understand me. This doesn't feel like you're seeing me at all. And we are in a position where we can either be like, okay, like either get angry or get defensive or listen and read and, and try to like going forward, like be better at it, you mm -hmm. know, but also be like, like we're trying to in, be inclusive and trying to tell different kinds of stories and that's like you know all we can any of us can do is just like try yeah absolutely and you have uh, Ali Wong as a pansexual uh, character in this uh, season right. which is which is exciting Ali, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, um, I play soccer. I'm a Ravenclaw and not to make all you normies shit your old navy undies but I am Pansexual. Holy shit! Jinx! Robert Durst! Kill them all, of course. Okay, Aiden says she got kicked out of their school because she made out with a nun. Uh, hi, Nick Birch, Gryffindor. The pansexual thing sounds intriguing. Could you speak to that some more? I'm not sure I'm ready to unravel all of this in my classroom. Pansexual means I'm into boys, girls, and everyone in between. I thought that was bisexual. No, bisexuality is so binary. <laughs> it's pronounced bonary. Uh, not so sure about you know, that. Like when I see those ads for real estate couples on benches, it makes me real bonery in my pants. Ugh, no. Being pansexual means my sexual preference isn't limited by gender identity. And gender is like male or female, right? And it's a choice? No? Uh, how do people talk these days? Oh my god. Okay. It's like, some of you borings like tacos, and some of you like burritos. And if you're bisexual, you like tacos and burritos. Oh my god, I'm fucking hungry now. But I'm saying I like tacos and burritos, and I could be into a taco that was born a burrito, sure, okay, or a burrito that's transitioning into a taco, comprende? Okay. And honey, anything else on the fucking menu? I was really just looking for a quick curse-free intro here. There's people who I think on uh, on social media have been like, you're your definitions of pansexual and bisexual are not how we see it. Mm -hmm. And, and you're, and, and, you know, there's a couple things within that. I'm like, well, it's a, it's a 13 year old girl who's like claiming her identity, mm -hmm. but like a lot of 13 year olds and like a lot of people on our show, they're saying whatever, it's not the truth, yeah. but it's just like, it's someone who's trying to figure out their identity and posturing as they know what's what, mm -hmm. but people who are watching the show feeling like we're not representing what bisexuality is or pansexuality is to them. Uh, I'm like, all right, maybe we didn't, maybe we didn't get it exactly right. And I, I will like, we, we are reading and, and listening to you and like, and hoping to, to, you know, get it right. But also being like, we're trying to talk about these things and we're not going to always get it right. And, and also that our characters are kids who aren't authorities on anything. They're they're similarly trying to figure it out. And sometimes they are not – we're not saying like they are defining what these things are. They're just trying to understand it themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean and that's what's so great about knowing that you have three – at least three more seasons to, to deal with this stuff because you can kind of have the confidence to – to know that you have the the real estate moving forward. I hope so. I our our, our goal is really like my goal is to like really um, continue to talk about all these different kinds of stories and and make people feel like their what their story is being seen and it's going to take time to tell all these different stories and let these characters evolve and also 
you know, when we don't get it exactly, when we don't get it right, that we'll like try to figure out how to get it right over time, you know? Mm, yeah. Um, so you also announced that you have a, a Big Mouth spinoff happening, right? Uh, Human Resources, is that? Correct. Is that, uh, what, what can you share about, about that news? So, you know, we, on Big Mouth at the end of season two, the, the kids go up into the world of the monsters, the, the department of puberty, which is all in the sort of this world of human resources. And the more we thought about it, the more we realized how rich that world would be. So it's a show that is a workplace comedy set in the world of the monsters. Um, so, uh, you know, the hormone monsters, but also the shame wizards, the depression kitties, the DN apes, all of the elements and characters and emotions and uh, the things that sort of manage who we are as people. Mm -hmm. um, and whereas Big Mouth really is focused on kids going through puberty and adolescence, this show really will allow us to go off and tell other stories in people's uh, the, uh, the broader landscape of a life lived of birth and death and um, divorce, marriage, uh, you know, um, and everything in between. Um, and so we're going to, you know, uh, you know, write this next season of, you know, where it's a it's a long process. Mm -hmm. It'll take a while for us yeah. to actually put the show out because we obviously have a lot more work to do on Big Mouth. But we're we're starting the process of moving forward, and and um, I, I'm really excited about it. I think it has like the potential to have like quite big, broad strokes and micro, big macro and micro stories to tell. But it really is, takes it's a it's a workplace comedy show mm -hmm. in the vein of The Office or all the other shows that sort of are workplace comedies about these hormone monsters. But then we'll be going down into the world of and to, to tell all these other kinds of human stories. Coming up, Nick talks about the stand-up tour that ultimately led to his new Netflix special, Little Big Boy. And later, he opens up about auditioning for SNL with John Mulaney and how he took the news that he didn't make the cut. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued, what was in Al Capone's vault, or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes on Wikipedia with host and friend of the last laugh, Darcy Carden, and her favorite comedian friends, as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to WikiHole, you will learn that's the sciencey term for eardrum. WikiHole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how the hell did we get here? Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my conversations with other big mouth stars and writers like Jason Manzukis, Jesse Klein, and Brandon Kyle Goodman along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. 
And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Nick Kroll. So you have also been out on a stand-up tour, yeah. uh, the Middle-Aged Boy Tour. Mm-hmm. Um, so how's that been been going? Uh, is it, this is sort of the, one of the bigger stand-up tours that you've done in a while, right? I think it's, yeah, I think it's kind of the biggest, most kind of concerted effort of a tour I've done ever, I think. Like, you know, I put out a special like almost 10 years ago, nine or 10 years ago called Thank You Very Cool. And it was stand-up and... There's a lot of characters though, right? And a lot of characters. And it really became sort of a backdoor pilot for Kroll Show. Mm -hmm. And then I've done stand-up over the years, but mainly like in LA when I'm around and I've done some smaller tours or, you know, dates around the country, you know, on my own to promote Kroll Show or with the Oddball tour a few years ago. But this is the most like I'm going out on the road and I'm doing this hour and I'm, you know, really kind of um, working on it. It's been really fun. And it's been I'm trying to take some of the lessons I've learned from Big Mouth, which is I feel like audiences with Big Mouth have really uh, been drawn to the fact that it's very a lot of comedy, but that there's a lot of um, uh, heartwarming. But really, like I'm I've been much more vulnerable in Big Mouth and. I'm trying to take that uh, across to my stand-up and being a little more personal and a little more revelatory about my life and where I am. And, I mean, the name of the tour being Middle-Aged Boys sort of speaks to this feeling of, like, here I am, I'm 41 years old, um, but there's still a lot of elements to my life that, you know, I'm very much an adult, but there are still elements to my life that are kind of boyish. And I think I was interested in exploring that and the material kind of lives in that space. And as I mean, it's silly and crazy and goofy, like the like what I find funny, but also kind of opening myself up and talking a little bit more personally about who I am and the things that are going on in my life that um, I I want to be um I want to be a little more honest and vulnerable with audiences and and you know it seems like people have liked that element of it that it's a little more you know digging digging in a little more. Why are we so mean to our moms? Like why are we so and everyone's like I'm not mean to my mom. Okay. Have you ever been with a friend and they get a phone call and they're like oh. <laughs> It's the fifth time. I got to take it, you know. Hello? Yes. Yeah, correct. I don't know. You could just text me this. I don't care that you want to hear my voice. Goodbye. They were on the phone with their mother, okay? Because we have no shorter fuse with anyone in our lives than we do with our mothers. I could be on the, like, I could, I could meet David Duke. Like, you know, like, the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan and be more patient with him than I would my own mother. I'd be like, oh, uh-huh. And you don't wear the hoods anymore. You're just... And you're a nonprofit. Wow, I did not know that. <laughs> Meanwhile, my mom could be like, I clipped an article for you about the LA Art Deco movement. And I'd be like, why would you do that, Mom? <laughs> you know Art Deco is my least favorite architectural movement. But it does seem like it is, yeah, more personal and that it, it there's a contrast from the stand-up that you started out doing, which was more doing characters. Yeah. Um, so how did how did you first start doing stand-up and did, when was that really the focus is, is developing these characters at the beginning or what was what were sort of the earliest? Uh... I mean, my early, early, early days in New York, you know, I started doing improv in college and I went to New York and we started like I was doing kind of anything and everything. So it was like I was doing improv classes at UCB. I was in a practice group. I was improvising with my friends from Georgetown in a group. But then I was doing open mics and doing stand-up. And then I started doing, you know, all these different kinds of weird shows in New York, alt spaces, and sometimes 
that was I was doing characters and then I was I joined a sketch group and I then got sick of doing sketch. So I started taking those characters and putting them live presentationally on stage and then got really into that and then still was sort of doing stand up along the way. But it was usually sort of dependent on the character stuff. Um, and I think it was because it was safer in some way to be like, well, I'm going to do this character like I know this character's point of view or I can hide behind it mm-hmm. and be like an old Upper West Side guy like you know oh hello or I can be like a craft services coordinator like Fabrice Fabrice or I can be like a Jersey Shore like douchebag like Bobby Bottle Service or blah blah blah, blah you know all those kinds mm-hmm. of things and and which was great and it's I love doing characters I, f- I love playing doing different voices and I love all that stuff but as I've gotten older I feel like you know I've seen I just feel like people are drawn to when they're watching stand up they want to see someone's point of view on something. Mm-hmm. And I still fill the act with the character voices and act outs and things that I think but it's usually in service of telling this story about myself and um and I'm, you know, it's it's like just the challenge for me of trying to continuing to evolve. And if I'm going to go do stand-up and I'm going to have a point of view on things, like I want it to be authentic to who I am and where I am in my life. Mm-hmm. What's the uh, what's sort of the origin story of the Oh Hello characters that, that you and John Mulaney developed? Because now they've, they've gone through so much, including the Broadway run yeah. recently. How did what, Where was sort of the first time that you, that you did that? Well, we saw these guys... You know, John and I were always fascinated with this sort of – these kind of Upper West Side characters, both from living in New York and growing up watching, like, Woody Allen and that kind of style of movies and, you know, Elliot Gould and uh, and and that kind of guy. Mm-hmm. We were in New York and there were these two older guys walking through the Strand bookstore and they were both buying their copies of Alan Alda's autobiography never have your dog stuffed and we just followed them around and watched them read their book at a coffee shop and so we then I had just I was doing a a show with Jesse Klein at this place called Rafifi which is now closed in New York but was like a real hub for alt comedy in their early mid 2000s and um, um, so Jesse was got a job, moved to LA, and so John took over as my co-host, and we decided to host these shows as these two guys, and so we would just host the shows every week and interview our friends and eat, drink tuna teenies and do be idiots, and and we just loved doing them, and we would just have fun making fun of our friends and and coming up with bits every week, and then when I moved to LA and eventually got that, actually got the thank you very cool special we thought it'd be fun to do the characters on that we did that on the special and then when i got kroll show um it felt like well let's have these guys be a part of kroll show and we shot all different kinds of things some of them more filmic like like a like kind of like feeling looking like a woody allen-ish movie and then also like a silly cable access prank show called too much tuna where we prank people too much tuna and that was very fun and people seemed to really like that and that's when we had like 15 year old girls and phoenix dressing up as these characters (laughs) for halloween and we were all of a sudden like oh this is because we were always told like well this is very niche only like industry and new york people will get this and like this and then once we saw all these other kinds of people getting into it we're like oh this is something and when i finished the league was finished or i maybe had one more season of the league but i finished kroll show i put it to bed and john had had just like uh, Mulaney had just finished and we were both like, what do we want to do? And we're like, well, let's maybe these guys, I think live play would be such a great thing. And we wrote it very hastily in LA, workshopped a little, brought it to the Cherry Lane Theater in New York, a small off-Broadway theater, and then had so much fun doing the run and then toured it and then brought it back to Broadway. And, you know, I was just talking to John this past weekend and we were reminiscing about it and like just thinking it was so fun you know, doing stuff on your own is very gratifying and pleasing. Like doing the stand-up tour is really mm-hmm. fun, and but like doing something like that with you know someone who you're so close to and who's been my f- dear, dear, dear friend for so long to then go off and have this experience together mm-hmm. 
is is incredibly gratifying. Do these do these characters uh, feel like they'll they'll stay with you? Um, you know, throughout your career, do you feel like there's more to be done with them, or how do you? I mean, our, how do you think about that? Our take is, you know, John and I have both said, and we genuinely mean it. It's that I hope we'll be doing these characters until we're the age of the yeah. guys themselves. So <laughs> that would be great. You know, it's the most fun. It's the most fun. Uh, it's the most fun, and and. Again, to do it with a guy who I've you know known since college, um, who's so deeply funny and and smart, um, is like is really like an incredible gift. Mm-hmm. You you cast him in in your improv group or what's I the... yeah when I was a senior I cast John and also Jacqueline Novak oh, who's yeah. got an amazing yeah. show right now up in New York called Get on Your yeah, Knees. Yeah, unbelievable. I saw her work it out here in L.A. before oh, cool. she went there, and it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's a great show. So to the think that like you know and and I was in the group and Berbiglia Mike Berbiglia invited me to audition for a sketch show and then join the improv group and he and. Ed Harrow and Brian Donovan, who are are now writers in L.A. on on a bunch of different shows, and um, Allison Becker, who's an amazing actress and and writer and comedian here in L.A. and um, all these people that I came up with, um, and John and Jacqueline, who were freshmen when I was a senior, and I knew b- immediately that both of them were these incredibly special voices. So to see now however many years like you know 15 years later to see how incredibly funny and smart uh they are is like a such a you know I I'm just like I'm like I can't believe I got to work with these <laughs> folks when they were kids and and to see now the world see how incredibly talented they are is is cool yeah uh so we we talked about Kroll show a little bit but I wanted to ask sort of that that came up not long after you had auditioned for SNL is that yeah. right so you auditioned with John Mulaney and, or at the same time as John Mulaney and Jordan Peele, <laughs> yeah, um, which is just kind of insane because you, I mean, all three of you are, are unbelievable and have gone on to such great things, all on Big Mouth, uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> together, yeah, yeah. Um, I was how, writing yeah. the wrongs of. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm how do you how do you feel about that uh, that experience now? Is it is it made you? Um, I don't know, think about the, the show in any different way, SNL, just the experience of, of auditioning and then having them reject you and Jordan Peele? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I so, growing up, SNL was so important to me. Um, and it still holds this weird power yeah. over all of us. Like, whether you watch the show or not, you're kind of always aware of who's being cast. Mm-hmm. And um, it just, it does loom very large. And I think when I... When I auditioned, I had been I had done Cavemen, and I kind of knew everything was going to be okay. Like you know, when you're young, and at that moment in time, it was a different moment in comedy when there weren't that many avenues to go do stuff. Mm-hmm. It was like if I don't get SNL, my career might not happen. Yeah, um, I knew if I didn't get SNL that things were going to be okay, that I was going to work. But I really more than anything ever in my comedy life I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live Mm -hmm. and John and I were pitching a movie in LA Uh, before that we both got a call being like they're you know we want to audition you guys for SNL and we like worked on our auditions together and and I at that point was like well I want to be on it I don't think I want to be a writer Um, and John had written already a bunch and is such an incredibly talented writer and got cast as a writer Mm -hmm. I got hired as a writer on the show and Jordan was in that audition Ellie Kemper was in that audition Uh, a bunch of there are a bunch of people on that audition who have gone on to have very yeah good careers Um, obviously Jordan like went and made keen so it was then if I then got cast on the league a year or two later and then made Kroll Show a few years after that. So like it took me a little while to get to doing Kroll Show, but mm-hmm. um but it and and Jordan and Keegan did Key and Peel a similar time frame that I did Kroll Show. And it was very funny for us to both be like, wow, we've you know, and there's something about SNL that I'll I'll always wish I got on that show. Mm-hmm. Like it'll just logically or illogically it doesn't matter. It's just like it's just that it's just got that hold. Even when I then got to go make my own sketch show on my terms, doing the characters I wanted to do without anyone else telling me what I could or couldn't do um, in an environment that was entirely in my control, there was still that thing of being like, oh, but Saturday Night Live, you know? <laughs> um, 
but it all it's all worked out. Yeah, it's well, all worked uh, out just fine. If you, you would you want to host if uh, if that opportunity I came up? I would love to. I would love to host that show. Yeah, John's it's, done it a couple times now. Yes, yeah. yeah, John, and he's done an amazing job. He's so he's he's so perfect for that show and understands that show on all levels, having written there for so long and and I think um, you know so, but yeah, it would be it's like. I don't if you asked any person in comedy right now like would you if given the opportunity would you go host Saturday Night Live like they would be lying if they said they didn't want to yeah, do it because yeah. it's just it's it was such an important show to me mm-hmm. it's like and 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 I you know and I know so many people who are there now and the people who've come through that system and it's a you know there's a lot of very very funny talented people there. Yeah, you've also worked a lot with Jenny Slate, who was there, and I'm not I'm not sure she had the the best experience there, but no, I think then that, that I know plenty of people who've been on that show who it didn't work out for in one way or another, and have gone on to have great careers, and other people who literally made their career starting there and have gone on to do other things, and I I, I don't. You know, it's not to be a cast member or writer there. It's not for everyone, for mm-hmm. sure. You know, yeah. um, from the outside, at least, it seemed like Kroll's show was just such a great um, gave you kind of ultimate freedom in terms of what you were able to do. Mm-hmm. Did it feel that way while you were while you were doing it? It did. I mean, it was such a um, I got to make a crazy show uh, with all my friends and Comedy Central was incredibly uh, open to us making the kind of show we wanted to make because we didn't even want to make a typical sketch show. We wanted to make this hybrid, multi-narrative, multi-character show that kind of built off of itself and uh, ate, ate its own tail and evolved and changed and broke form and and also like was really dependent on playing into other forms and genres of reality shows and all their kinds of things. So um, it was incredible. And it was all the characters that I have been developing with some of them with like John Daly and, um, and Jenny Slate and being able to bring in like Jason Manzukis to do bits or John mm-hmm. Mulaney to do Oh Hello and, and then interview them inside the show. And then, you know, John Levenstein who ran that show is, is such a special comedy brain and, bringing all the stuff that he wanted to do and try out and things. It was really an opportunity to do the things a lot of us knew we wouldn't be able to do elsewhere mm-hmm. and um, and put it together. And, and John Kreisel, who directed it, who had done Tim and Eric and has gone on to do Baskets and, um, and Portlandia, Portlandia and, yeah. you know, and, and, and um, all these different kinds of shows. Like, it really was this opportunity. It was like a real... Like, well, let's try it and see what it is mm-hmm. and let's take weird chances and do really weird meta inside stuff and 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 also and like or doing stuff with like Chelsea and really being able to be like, I love have always loved Chelsea and be able to work with her and give her the freedom to 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 be as crazy and funny and sharp as she wants to be and 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 give you know, let her let us play in that space together. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, myself included, were surprised when you decided to end it after three seasons. Mm. Was there sort of a an overarching reason why you why you decided to to end it? There was a couple reasons. Um, you know, because we had built this sort of meta cross breeded world where characters and storylines started to meld and you know different worlds started to enmesh it was sort of like sounds it was not exactly like a herald but a long form improv where you have these different scenes and that hopefully by the and there's like three acts to it and by Mm -hmm. the third act you hope that all of these stories have combined into one cohesive story it wasn't exactly that but by the third season all of these worlds started to enmesh and come together um, and I felt like we had really explored a lot of those characters and storylines to their natural conclusion. Um, and I was also just exhausted yeah. because I had basically been doing the league, going from the league to Kroll show and back and then inside of that making a couple of movies and going on tours. And I just was physically exhausted and mentally a little drained. And I was like, I feel like we've told the stories we want to tell. And I think we can put this to bed. And I also wanted to open up my brain uh, to and 
physical time to start over and think about new things. And when I put Kroll Show to bed and, and took a back seat on the end of the league and it opened up to what has become that oh, that run of uh, what became the Oh Hello on Broadway and Big Mouth, um, which have been incredibly gratifying uh, on a lot of levels. And I don't think I could have done either of those things had I continued on making more seasons of Kroll Show. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what I want to do now before we wrap up is kind of go through uh, a few other of your credits that we didn't get a chance to talk about and just see if there's a, a story or, or memory mm. that kind of jumps out. Mm. Um, I saw that one of your, your earliest writing gigs was on Chappelle's show. Mm-hmm. What do you remember from from that? It was me and my Georgetown buddies, all the improv guys from there, uh, Ed and and Berbiglia and our my friend Conrad Mulcahy is no longer in comedy and and Brian Donovan. Uh, I was friends with Neil Brennan, and mm-hmm. he was like, "If you have sketch ideas, let us know." And we pitched them a bunch of ideas, and the sketch that we sold them ultimately was the white family whose last name is spelled N-I-G-G-A-R, uh, which they then turned into like a kind of leave it to beaver. Mm-hmm. Um, and we pitched some other stuff, but that was the one thing they really bought. It was an amazing thing to early on, especially when Chappelle Show was so, so important that we had any version of a credit there was, mm-hmm. you know, was awesome. Good niggas. Why, it's Christian, our colored milk man. And it's my favorite family to deliver milk to. The niggas. Mm-hmm. Something sure smells good. You niggas cooking? We sure are. There's some leftover bacon if you'd like some. Ooh, none for me. I know better than to get between a nigga and their pork. Might get my fingers bit. <laughs> Here you go. I, I hate to bother you about this, but, uh, well, you didn't pay your bill last week. And I know how forgetful you niggas are when it comes to paying bills. Golly, Clifton, it slipped my mind. Here you go. Sorry about that. Oh, nigga, please. Nigga, please. A few years later, uh, you took your character El Chupacabra to Reno 911. Yeah. Um, Was that a big uh, kind of... Uh, opportunity at the time? Yeah, it was so exciting. I mean, I had watched Reno 911, especially like as a guy just getting started in comedy. I was such a nerd for the state and, you know, Tom Lennon and Ben Grant and all of the folks on and Carrie and all the and then all the people they brought into that show. Uh, I love that show. And that was a big deal to like get on that show and be able to improvise and play with them and feel like I could keep up was so exciting and um the idea that like those guys who i had watched when i mean they were young but i was like in high school and college that they were like hey come come mess around with us was like was incredibly exciting Hmm. was there a first uh, movie role that you felt like you really got to be funny in a movie um i mean the early movies i was in i was in i love you man a little scene with a couple little scenes uh, with me and Aziz and, and Rudd, and that was really cool. Um, date night, I have a brief scene where I'm the, like, asshole mater D for Steve Carell and Tina Fey, and um, I got to kind of improvise and add a couple things in there, and that was really exciting because I was just looking at, like, at that moment, Liz Lemon and <laughs> and Michael Scott. Yeah. I mean, I was they are so much yeah. more than that, but yeah. it was like I was had to got to play with those two. It was really cool and uh, get him to the Greek then with with uh, with Jonah and and Russell Brand and 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 Diddy and getting to improvise in that sort of world was so cool. You know, it was like all these little one scene in a movie, but feeling like you know. I was like, I had fulfilled my dream. I was like in a big studio comedy and got to mess around, and it was really fun. Um, you were on uh, Parks and Rec a bunch with um, with Matt Besser. Yes, as a, as a duo. Crazy Ira and the douche. Hey, hey, Liz. Before we go, can you just uh, do our tag? The only douche I let clean my douche is the douche. How do I do it? You said the only <clears throat> douche that I let clean my douche, douche is, is the, the douche. douche. I don't, I don't know if I want to. Well, then it's into the spank chair. Spank chair. Spank chair. Spank chair. Spank chair. Spank chair. Oh. The only douche that I let use my is my is your is the douche. Almost. Beyonce didn't have a problem with that one. 
So uh, was that was that fun to get to to work with him, uh, one yeah, of the UCB I mean, founders? All those UCB folks, like you know, were that the reason I really fell in love with comedy was taking classes at UCB and doing workshops when I was still in college, and being able to play with 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 him was was super cool. And um, it's so funny now. Parks and Rec is now like on Netflix and mm-hmm. all those shows that we all loved and were so excited to be a part of when we were when they were on but not everybody in the country saw them but now that they're on Netflix and Hulu or wherever they're streaming people like all new generations of kids are watching it and and are digging it it's and it's funny to all of a sudden be like oh my god you're the douche I was like I was you know I was yeah. on that show like <laughs> seven years ago but I'm thank I'm psyched you're watching it now yeah um, we didn't get to talk much about the league, uh, but that's a, a show that I love, and I know so many people do. Um, is there a story, or, or when you think about your time, you know, you spent a long time on that show. Yeah. Is there is there something that that stands out, or or just a memory? Oh man, I mean, it's there's so many. It's like you know, I got to spend seven seasons with that that crew of people, and it was such a funny group of people. And you know, some of us were from the same world. Some of us, like me and. Uh, Paul Shear and Manzukas all came out of the improv world, but everybody else was from different spaces. And, you know, we all came together on that show and became really good friends. And uh, we just all got together in, in Austin, and it was so fun being back together with everyone. Um, I'm trying to think, I don't know, there's so many stories, honestly. <laughs> like, you know, obviously the stuff with Manzukas and I as Rafi stands out as so fun. There's, a, there's an outtake of him realizing that um Whitney Houston is dead and then that Michael Jackson's dead and and I you watch me not at a, truly not being able to keep a straight face and I like have to leave the room for him to do his side of the coverage <laughs> all right well I brought you here for a reason it's scrote season oh man you guys do such fun stuff together I want to hang out and like hit each other in the dick and stuff well it's not gonna happen I'm trying to protect my balls okay I'm hoping that you can help me yes I will be your ballsy guard from now on I'm Kevin Costner. Your balls are Whitney Houston. R.I.P. R.I.P. Whitney Houston? Yeah. Oh, my God. Whitney's dead? Yeah. Oh! How's Michael Jackson taking it? Oh, buddy. But, yeah, that's... Yeah, I mean, it's it was like four months every year. It was like we got to go to camp. Mm-hmm. It was like going to camp every year with the same group of people. You're like, oh, we have four years of this... Four, four months every year that I get to spend with this this lovely group of people who yeah. I love. And it was almost... And, oh, other, I mean, the other thing I will say is the fun little... Fact is on Big Mouth, um, Jay's brothers are Sheer and Mark Duplass. Yeah, yeah. So it's we're always doing these kind of like mini league reunions inside of the inside of Big Mouth. Yeah, I love that. Um, and then the last one that I wanted to touch on uh, is a movie that I got to see at South by Southwest this year, mm. Olympic Dreams. Yeah, which I thought was really incredible. Thank movie, you. Um, and just really special. Uh, so what what can you kind of share about about that experience um it's this movie olympic dreams that i made with this filmmaker couple alexi pappas and jeremy teicher and alexi's a summer olympian she's a a long distance runner and the olympic committee gave them an artist in residence grant to go to the winter olympics to make something and they brought me this idea for a movie and i worked on it with them and we built this script um very loosely loose improvised storyline that we then went inside of the Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang in in South Korea last year and shot a movie just the three of us with no crew and the other actors it's me and Alexi and then the other actors are all real Olympic athletes including Gus Kenworthy who's now on American Horror Story um, and a bunch of other really interesting athletes who you know lent us their time and and we just got this inside look at the Olympics in a way that I don't know if anyone's ever really been able to. It doesn't feel like you've ever quite seen the Olympics yeah, this it's, way. It's like a fascinating movie. Yeah. It's pretty. It's usually pretty managed and polished. And here we are inside of the athletes' lounge and the med center and the dorms, and you really get a sense of because of how small the movie is of what it's like inside of the Olympics. And yet it's so grand because we're the backdrop is this huge world event. So I'm really excited for people to see it. I really I find I think the movie's really Can people see it yet or it'll be out. IFC is releasing it in the new year. IFC okay, bought cool. it and it'll be out in the new year. Um I don't know exactly the date, but it'll be in in, in I guess two thousand twenty, early in the year. Mm-hmm. And uh 
I'm really excited. The other thing I'll just drop because I'm I assume this is coming out soon is yeah, yeah. the Adams Family. Mm-hmm. Uh, I play Uncle Fester uh, in the Adams Family, an animated movie. Uh, I think that comes out October 11th, uh, and it's very fun and it's got a great cast. Charlize Theron and Oscar Isaac and Chloe Grace, Grace Moritz and, and Finn Wolfhard and Snoop Dogg and a bunch of other funny, talented people. It's it's like a, you know, I love doing the animated movies with kids and stuff. And I think this one's actually pretty funny and weird. It's much weirder mm-hmm. than your average, like, kids animated movie. And this one, even younger kids can watch than Big Mouth, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, younger kids can watch. But I think it's one also that, like, a comedy adult parents mm. who want to go see it it's it's pretty funny and weird and dark yeah cool yeah um so then we end every episode by asking uh comedians what's the last piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard so you can think about it kind of like a, a recommendation uh for something uh something you saw on, on tv or movie or stand up or, or um, really anything well on my tour i'm having different people open for me and the the two openers that I've had recently, uh, Emmy Blotnick, who is a great writer, I got to know because John Mulaney and I, uh, when we hosted the Spirit Award, she was a writer for us both of those, mm. and she's written for Colbert and ran the President Show. She's got a great album called Party Nights. She's super funny. And then I also recently had Langston Kerman open for me, mm. who's um really funny stand-up and actor and writer. He writes on Southside. Um, he's currently on Bless This Mess on ABC, and he's got a, um, I think his, his album's called Light Skin Feelings. Um, they're both stand-ups that I've been, I've been traveling with and opening, they've been opening for me, and they're both super funny. So I would go check out their stuff, yeah. Emmy Blotnick and Langston Kerman. Check them out. All right. Well, thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. All right. Hope you enjoyed that conversation from 2019 with the great Nick Kroll. Season six of Big Mouth is streaming now on Netflix, as is his really funny stand-up special, Little Big Boy. We'll be back with an all-new episode next week, but in the meantime, if you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.